I feel like my career and my trajectory, I've never been able to predict what I'd be doing three to five years down the line. And I've never really tried. And I've just kind of trusted that as long as I'm interested and engaged with what I'm doing and it's meaningful, then it's going to sort itself out. And that approach has been really successful for me. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Diana Brainer's passion for better understanding our stories and experiences initially led to her study of comparative literature in college. But sometime during her junior year abroad in Lyon, she realized she could pursue her passion through medicine, a journey that's taken her from academic infectious diseases at Mass General Hospital to her current role as Senior Vice President and Head of Virology at Gilead Sciences. She's also, full disclosure, my wife, which is not only why we were able to book her, given her insane schedule these days, but also why we are especially delighted to welcome her to our show. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat, Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Hey, David, how's it going? All right. So, uh, Lisa, here's what I'm curious about today. For as long as I've known you, you've been a road warrior, traveling a fair amount for business. Obviously, everything initially stopped because of COVID. Are you seeing any signs in your own work of the beginnings of a return to travel? Or are we consigned to this not-so-fresh Zoom hell for the foreseeable future? Um, I think there is no... A surprise that we are seeing a rise in the use of psychedelics to take you to different places. <laughs> I don't think there's any other way we're going there anytime soon. <laughs> oh, that's uh, you know, it's I, funny. You know, I, the longest I haven't traveled since I was in my early twenties, and um, because I always travel for work, you know, sometimes three hundred thousand miles a year. I mean, it was like long, lots of travel, and uh, it's weird as hell. You know, it's really weird. yeah. I mean, like I remember like running into you. Um, we we're both like. Uh, in Boston at the, uh, like yeah. at the bar at the Marlowe, right? Uh, exactly. For like a bourbon. That was like, that was good times, good times. All right. So, <laughs> well, we're pleased to welcome to the show another road warrior who I know is how to adjust to this new world, Dr. Diana Brainerd of Gilead. Welcome, Diana. Hi there. Great to be here. I've been a fan for a long time. <laughs> at least I've had it imposed on you for a long time. <laughs> All righty. All righty. So as SVP of uh, Virology at Gilead, Diana is responsible for the company's efforts around HIV, hepatitis B and C, and an area called emerging viruses, which of course now includes SARS-CoV-2, where she's quarterbacked the company's pioneering work around remdesivir, as I uh, suspect we'll get to. Um, But let's start in the beginning. Let's start Uh, with how are you doing without the travel, Diana? Are you stuck with David every single day? Is it a living hell or are you okay? The hardest part was the beginning. I actually, it was the adjustment to the change. And, you know, just both from a work standpoint where we have such a face-to-face culture and then trying to figure out how to get things done without seeing people in person um, and at, and being at home and not knowing how to work from home and be, everyone being on top of each other. I feel like now that 
the fall has come around, um, not that any of us prefer this setup, but we have kind of hit a stride and it, it, we're in a rhythm. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be one of those crazy things where as much as I um, look forward to getting back to normal, there are going to be some things that I miss. I mean, it's been some things about it are nice, like, you know, seeing David seeing and the kids, kids throughout yeah. the day. <laughs> yeah, and, and you. Um, so uh, so I, I think there will be a little bit of poignancy. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, um, Diane, I know you were uh, born in Chicago, moved to Brooklyn, and then to the Connecticut suburbs, and that you um, uh, had a great experience at a Montessori school, a less good experience, it sounds like, or less challenging experience at public school in Connecticut. Even though you skipped a grade, weren't gifted program, just weren't really challenged. But then things really took off when you um, headed off to boarding school in 10th grade at Hotchkiss. What happened there that was so special? Well, I think that, you know, when I was in public school, it wasn't so much that I felt myself like floating at a different level. I mean, I was just in school and school was fine, but it was sort of, it was boring. It was kind of the sort of what you would see in an 80s movie of what school is supposed to be, where it's the place you're passing notes and, um, you know, uh, connecting with friends and decorating your locker. Um, but it had never occurred to me that it could be something more. Um, and when I went to boarding school, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect, but the, uh, I was sort of blown away by my classes, not every single one, but, but, the, um, but the teachers were amazing. And, and it felt, um, felt like my eyes were kind of opened and I thought, wow, like this is, what, this is what it can be. And it was really exciting all of a sudden to learn new things and to master topics and um, figure out how to write and communicate, and so um, that was that was. It a big sounds like you liked everything, both math, science, and English, and and uh, I guess foreign uh, languages. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I mean, I I um you know was I was I think I was more um, drawn to specific teachers than having a specific affinity for any given topic. I kind of as long as it was taught well, I really enjoyed learning. Wow. But it sounds um, like your real passion coming out of school was squash, that you became a squash player. Yeah. <laughs> I have great That's right. I traded my, um, my uh, you know, tennis, like, down to upstroke for the, you know, squash uh, up to down and um, kind of got hooked on that. So, um, that's a big, yeah. it's a big difference. So what did you like about you squash that made you want to play? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, um, Hotchkiss was the place where everybody did, three sports, you know, you had your fall, your winter, and your spring, and um, I needed a winter sport, so I just picked up squash because I was, you know, good at racket sports, and um, I think I really liked the intensity of being in that box, and the fact that you get in there, and you have to really focus, or you're going to, you know, the ball's going to be by you in a nanosecond, and um, so, so, you know, it's a chance to really escape, and, and hone in on what you're doing, and you know, forget about the outside world. Yeah, I also really like the smashing myself. <laughs> yes, the smashing is good. <laughs> well, see, I like squash, and I was going to say the uh, the uh, cerebral strategy, but uh, I'm sure it's some combination <laughs> of all of it. Um, I'm just kidding. I kind of like the smashing, too. Um, so uh, I know, um, and the elegance. So um, I know that you were actually um, uh, recruited um, by colleges as a student athlete, and in fact, by your senior year in college, you uh, were an academic all-Ivy selection, and I found that on Google, so I know it must be true. Um, so like many other tectonic guests, you um, 
decided to uh, attend college at Brown. Uh, what spoke to you about Brown, do you think? What motivated you? What, what, what drew you to the place? Well, um, I mean, I, to, to be honest, I was recruited to play squash there, and I was really excited about that. But I also, after spending a few years at, uh, you know, a, a tightly constrained, rules-bound um, uh, boarding school where we had school six days a week and had to get permission to go off campus, um, um, I was looking forward to getting into a setting that was, you know, just much more open-minded and um, uh, I love the idea that they encourage people to um, follow their intellectual curiosity. You didn't have to, there were no requi academic requirements. You could just take whatever class you wanted, take whatever class you wanted, pass, fail. Um, that seemed really exciting to me and a great fit because I, you know, didn't really have a strong sense of wanting to do one specific thing. And I guess you really engaged um, once you were there. Um, I mean, you, because of all your APs, you, you, you had all these advanced classes, and uh, you especially enjoyed, it sounds like, the humanities. Uh, you took it for a number of years, even in um, French. You took for a number of years, even in high school. Loved the language, spent even a summer there in high school. So this motivated you to spend your junior year abroad there, and you even started to envision a potential life direction around this, right? Like a whole uh, kind of uh, image of yourself as like an expat. Could you get into that? And more importantly, sure, yeah. call yourself a beret. I need to know if you have ever. Uh, no. <laughs> I've never been a hat wearer. I just, I just have never been able to look in the mirror and, um, you know, get out of the bedroom with, with a, <laughs> it. Doesn't work. Um, but, uh, but no. I mean, I, I, at, you know, at Brown, the literature classes I was taking were small and. Um, much more sort of engaging than the um, advanced science classes I took early on. And so I, I, I turned away from that a little bit and um, thought that I would go on to get my PhD in comparative literature. And um, But really, I think what was behind all of that was just how much I love to read and how much um, I enjoy, you know, I do enjoy writing. And so reading and then writing about what I was reading was really fun. However, when I got to France, there were a few things that stopped me and my tracks, one of them was the first time I was not taking any science or math. And so I was only doing literature and lit theory. And it all of a sudden felt really, really abstract and kind of disconnected from reality. And, and, and realizing that the, the path to success there was all about creating sexy arguments, but it didn't have to do with truth. It didn't have to do with, um, you know, finding something out that was real. It was all about, like, can you package something together in a way that you're professor finds interesting. So, you know, figure out what he or she is interested in and, and or what the sort of theory du jour is and then put everything into that language. Um, and uh, that didn't seem all of a sudden like it was going to be sustaining for me lifelong. Um, and then the other thing is I just, you know, my as much as I love the French language and um, reading live the literature, I found being there to be a little constraining. I mean, I was, you know, a junior from Brown, I was vegetarian, I was really into, you know, animal rights, human rights, women's rights, and um, I just didn't jive with the culture there. It felt very conservative, very constrained. Didn't work out for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of the themes there in Lyon are, are what we're seeing here in terms of right now in terms of immigration. And um, uh, so, so, so that also, didn't feel like a great fit for me and, and made me really re-examine um, where my future might lie. And how did you get from 
you know, French and literature and that sort of romantic life, right, to focus on the medicine side? What was the transition that you made there? Yeah, I mean, it was really through primary, like a vision of the romantic ideal of being a family doctor and, um, or, you know, you know, some kind of a doctor and this idea that being a physician would allow me to have a window into people's lives that in the same way is very much like what happens when you're reading something, you know, that's a great, you know, work of literature where all of a sudden you're opened up into a world and you sort of see inside people's lives. But, but yet at the same time, being able to have an impact there, not just being a passive observer, but being able to be part of that and, and ideally, you know, a force for good and help and change. And so um, I was doing, you know, some reading there, Heirs of a General Practice by John McPhee. I, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain was, um, made a really strong impression on me in terms of, I think, really drawing me in without being, even being aware of it into infectious diseases for the first time with the tuberculosis. Um, and, uh, and then I, um, uh, yeah, I, do, I just sort of thought, like, if I, if I do this, I can be grounded, but I can also access that side of me that's, like, really interested in, in humanity and, the, like, the story side of the world. It's interesting because I know one of your mentors or people you reached out to, Robert Coles, actually has a book, The Call of Stories, um, and I, it sounds like his um, correspondence with you um, uh, and your shared love for William Carlos Williams also was really influential. Um, so it sounds like you made this kind of pretty significant pivot. Um, you took a year off to finish pre-med coursework um, and then wound up at a Tulane Medical School where uh, New Orleans, which you love despite the heat, humidity, flooding, and uh, industrial-sized cockroaches. It's the worst um, of France and America all rolled up into one. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no, but I know you love the music and, and just the culture and everything. Um, and then you'll actually even also, while there, really loved medical school, at least once you got onto the wards, um, at Charity Hospital, kind of a legendary place, which turned out to be an exceptionally hands-on experience. What was it like at the time to be a med student at Charity? Well, it was a fantastic place to be um, in medical training. I mean, there was there was always something going on there. There was there was um, because the place was so short-staffed and so big, um, you know, over a thousand beds. Uh, there was there was always something to be done, and it was a place where you could um, really feel like you're helping and contributing and also learn a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, you know, the flip side of, um, uh, of it was that a lot of patients didn't have regular health care. And so you got to see disease at a fairly advanced stage and a lot of different heterogeneous diseases because people were in New Orleans from many different parts of the world. And so there was a lot of unusual medicine uh, there. And, you know, so I got experience from everything from, you know, doing my own EKGs, of course, drawing blood, procedures, um, and, um, and, and mostly just that sense of responsibility for, like, if I don't do this, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think that that was that accountability is a really important part of, being a good doctor. Well, it sounds like that preparation must have also served you well uh, in, in your uh, internship and residency at Mass General. I know that at Tulane, um, you had um, you connected with uh, the head of ID, who you really resonated with. Um, he actually trained at MGH, as I understand it. So you sort of were uh, heard about the system. Um, 
uh, how was your experience there? Was it similar to a charity, different? I mean, other than the very different quality of the med students, no doubt. What was that like for you more generally um, at MGH? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the, the, one of the big things for me, like the transition from medical student to um, residency is even though, you know, I felt in, in medical school like I was doing these things that were important, I actually, um, having that experience, which um, was very much there at Mass General of like being on the front line and kind of being there all the time and really being responsible for um, the, you know, patient's welfare and um, having to look out for them. That was, that was like a very scary thing. And it was a good thing. I mean, I learned a lot there too. And, and um, I, I feel like the, the people working there are incredible and devoted. Um, but, you know, it is kind of that experience, you know, like your first night on call when, when the phone call comes to you from the nurse and they're like, well, you know, if so-and-so is having chest pain, what do you want to do? And you're like, well, you're looking behind you, like, why are you asking me? I don't know anything. Like, but... <laughs> Yeah, imagine what happened. But there's no one else there. I, I really, I remember that. I remember Runky, um, and I really didn't know anything, so it was even worse. I, knew, I learned how to Xerox papers for attendings when I was in med school, so uh, I, I, it was even more stressful. Um, but in any case, um, you you muddled through uh, actually exceptionally well, um, matched in, um, continued on through an ID fellowship uh, uh, at MGH and the Brigham, um, uh, worked in the. Um, uh, ultimately, in the lab of uh, Bruce Walker, and even went to South uh, went to South Africa, where you helped um, uh, uh, set up an HIV lab. What was the experience in HIV in South Africa at that time? And Diana, I'd love to hear how that connects to your current experience, especially like you know, what did you learn there that as you got here and thought about HIV in America? What you know, how did those things connect for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I, you know, I, I went over to South Africa, it was um, in 2000, and at that time, the HIV epidemic was um, skyrocketing in South Africa, but it was still not really well understood by, you know, society en masse there. Like, we were trying to, you know, one part of what I was doing was focused on setting up a lab so we could um, try to help understand HIV immunology and, and have insights into um, what was allowing it to evade the immune system. Um, but at the same time, we were also trying to really engage with um, uh, some you know, companies there around what can we do to help them be aware. And also, you know, if they were um, on board with diagnosis, with getting treatment, that could be really cost effective for them because so many workers were dropping out because they got HIV and would just die. And so, um, but there was, there was still this feeling of this is not something we want to talk about. Even at the level of the government, um, there was skepticism around antiretrovirals and a feeling of um, it was actually illegal to uh, use government funds to prescribe antiretrovirals for even for rape victims um, at the time. So there was, um, there was a kind of a sense of despair um, ab about the situation. And I, I recently went back to South Africa early this year. It was the last trip I made before COVID um, and visiting a lot of the same places where I had been uh, back in 2000. And 
Um, even though HIV is still a huge problem there, especially for young women, um, where it seems to have really concentrated and, and um, focused in terms of becoming kind of part of the fabric of society there, um, there's, there has been a huge shift in terms of how people have um, uh, think, are at least comfortable talking about HIV and um, trying to help access to medications. And so I, I feel much more optimistic and um, in the sense, you know, what, what we're doing in the U.S. is trying to um, focus on the pockets of the, of the country where there still needs to be light shined on the problem, um, particularly in the South, um, getting people more comfortable thinking about HIV, talking about HIV, getting tested for HIV, um, thinking about preventing HIV, and then getting access to treatment. So, so there, there, there are parallels there. So, Diane, I know you said just a moment ago that you got exposed to companies thinking about these things too, and, and you soon after all of this went to Merck, which was your first you know, time you went to industry instead of working on the, on the medical side. What was the motivation? Was it, you know, rooted in your desire to help them see how to do it right? Was it, you know, because you felt like it could have a bigger impact? Where, what, what, what made you go there? Well, it was, it was kind of serendipity. And I, I feel like that's been a little bit of a theme in my life is just making these transitions without really knowing, uh, with a lot of uncertainty, you know, deciding to go to medical school. There was no one in my family that was a doctor. I didn't know any doctors um, except for my pediatrician and the scary doctor that took care of my parents. Um, uh, but, but it seemed, it felt right. And this was kind of the same thing where um, David had taken a job at Merck and uh, we were going to move to New Jersey. And I thought I, initially that I would just take my grants and go to an academic institution. But as I was kind of working through the logistics of that, it, it didn't feel quite right for me. And um, uh um, so I then um, started thinking about other options, and when I talked to people at Merck, they, they just they seemed really engaged about the work they were doing. And this was at a time when um, uh, there was a first-in-class drug uh, for HIV, it was a new integrase inhibitor that Merck was developing. It was really exciting, and people just seemed really engaged in in what they were doing, the impact they could have, and. I felt like I, I think I could do that. I think I might want to be a part of that. And, um, you know, there was also the sense that the work I was doing in the lab was interesting, but I didn't think I was going to cure HIV. I really, you know, it wasn't, I liked it and I, it was a puzzle that I liked to, you know, kind of put together, but I didn't think that my work independently was going to be making a huge difference. Why? Why um, did you feel that way? That's so interesting because, I mean, you've been a part of numerous things that resulted in cures of pretty profound problems. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, not having, um, I mean, part of it was not having a, um, not having a PhD and being in the lab, but I think bigger than that, it was kind of, um, I wasn't kept up at night by the, you know, the scientific questions, like just eating away at me. I liked being good at what I was doing and I, and I liked asking questions and answering them but um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really sure if I had it in me to, um, you know, write, be writing the grants forever, building a huge franchise and being the, the leader in that academic way. I just, I just, it didn't ring true. And, and then I'll also say that I had this other thing happen where um, it, was the, it was the summer before uh, uh, 
David took the job at Merck where um, I was doing this translational research project looking at um, uh, samples from blood and lymph nodes in patients with HIV looking at their T cells to see if there were different important differences there. And I had a needle stick injury, like open, um, like through the glove, uh, high risk from a patient who um, had multi-drug resistant HIV. And uh, so, yeah, it was scary. And um, I had to go on a bunch of different medicines, um, two of which were experimental, hadn't been approved yet because the patient had such highly resistant um, HIV. And um, I wound up getting hepatitis from one of the drugs. I wound up getting like a full bad body rash from another one of the drugs. And it was not viral it hepatitis, really like, a liver, like a liver inflammation. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, uh, but it really highlighted to me, you know, that the, the medicines for, for HIV were not great. Um, I mean, it's dramatic how far we've come since then. Um, but I think I was acutely aware from a personal standpoint and also from the, you know, the, the people in my clinic that, that there was more that needed to be done in that arena. And the collaboration aspect you've told me? Yeah, I mean, once I got to Merck, I was blown away by the style of working there that was collaborative, you know, these big projects to advance a drug from the lab through to patients and then on to approval and getting it out to the world is bigger than one person. And it turned out that I worked really well in that type of setting where um, you have to kind of bring a lot of different voices to the table. Um, and at the same time, you can't get mired in hearing all those different voices. You have to drive towards decisions and then execute on those decisions. And, and that was a skill that, that kind of came natural to me that, that, I, that I, I don't think was really um, as valuable in academics as, as it is in industry. And so it felt really good to, to recognize that and also have others recognize that in me. And I think it's been one of the traits that's led to my success. So you moved soon after along the way to, to Gilead, where you've had an incredible career. You've been there a long time and, and have risen up to the SVP level of, of, of virology, which covers, you know, have BFC um, and, you know, now, of course, COVID-19 as well. I'm wondering about the feeling. I mean, there must be such an interesting feeling, as you, especially as you're involved in Savaldi and the like so much to know you're contributing cures, which is very rare. I mean, there are very few things that actually cure disease on the medicine front. And also at the same time, hearing such negative feedback from the market about pricing and you know equity and all of that. I mean, it must be very confusing or at least annoying to, um, <laughs> to, to know that both things have to live in your head, right? The good and the bad of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be very distracting, um, and, and I try not to be overly distracted by it. I mean, I do think that it's important to have, um, you know, people looking at the work that we do or in any industry that do and, and being critical of it, right? Like, that's what enables people to move forward and, and improve and be better. At the same time, a lot of the noise that's out there is, you know, I, I put it into the bucket of virtue signaling and really sort of unhelpful and um, also not really based in reality um, in terms of where we are in our society and how our society is structured. You know, there's a, there's, you know, there's um, IP protection and that's a really important part of the world we live in. And 
because of that IP protection, um, people invest in making drug discoveries that have saved lives, I mean, millions of lives across the globe. And so to talk about just removing someone's patent and taking it away, like that's not really moving things forward in a right. meaningful way. Um, you know, it's also, it, it also can be uh, frustrating to have people focus on price, but recognizing that the price, drug pricing system in the U.S. is very complicated. And the fact that, you know, there is a list price you can find, um, I don't know if you can find it on the internet, but there's a list price for every drug that's available. Nobody actually pays that price, but like, then why is it out there? And that's a problem, and I don't think I can solve that problem, but but I understand how it can create a lot of consternation. I just wish that, you know, people could focus more on the things that really matter, which is, you know, how to get access to people as broadly as possible and um, how to make sure that, that medicines continue to improve and that they're working the way people think that they're working. Well, I really like this quote from uh, Craig Garthwaite where he says, you know, one of the biggest access issues people don't talk about are the um, discoveries that don't happen in the uh, drugs that never are invented or, or developed. You know, Diana, it's, it's so um, interesting to hear about the the differences in views around drugs, you know, for for hep, hepatitis, and I know there was, you know, massive, and there continues to be at times controversy around HIV drugs, you know, just even the question as to whether the amount of money and effort should be put into them, you know, because it's quote unquote affects a small number of people, um, and you know, I think there's a lot of uh, point of view that you know affects people that you know are marginalized in some ways, although it's clearly untrue. Um, with COVID, where you are now knee deep um, at Gilead, mm -hmm. there's, you know, money being thrown at it left and right, sometimes indiscriminately. Um, maybe not all coming to Gilead, but nevertheless being, being addressed, you know, in a very different kind of way and incredible engagement all over the world and uh, an open discussion. And I just wonder what it's like to be thinking about and experiencing this now you know, in contrast to some of the things you've worked on in the past, which I think a lot of people would have tried to, you know, brush under the rug more because of, you know, who it affected, quote unquote. Yeah, well, I mean, I, there, there still are similar themes, you know, just in terms of some of the, you know, structural inequities of society, like playing out even with COVID, yeah. right? But, um, but, but I, but I, um, but I do say, think that this is a really important moment for virology getting center stage and for people recognizing um, the importance of antiviral research and drug discovery. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time, like, this is a problem that we can solve. And, of course, you know, society's impatient. People don't understand, like, how things work. But the progress that's been made has been really amazing. And, 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 and really across all, I mean, of course things could be done much better. Um, but at the same time, you know, like the, if you look at the, the death rates from COVID, just focusing in the US um, between March and where we are now, they're dramatically lower. And they're lower because people have learned um, some really important things about how to care for patients with COVID. Um, this was a disease that nobody knew anything about. And so at the beginning, people were trying to triangulate. Is it SARS? Is it like MERS? Is it like influenza? But it's really none of those things. It's its own disease. And um, having to kind of uh, study it and understand it, I think 
there maybe wasn't enough attention paid to how important it is to define the thing that you're trying to fight. And then at the same time, what's also been a challenge is there's been so many different treatments tested and people really aren't sure um, how to measure an effect, right? Everybody thinks of, oh, you're not curing this, that's a problem. But there are benefits well beyond a cure, right? I mean, think about all the different human illnesses there are out there. Like there are very few that cure things. There are very few that, few that actually you can say, oh, this is gonna save your life. But that doesn't mean that there aren't benefits. Getting people out of the hospital faster is a really strong benefit. Preventing people from having to go on a ventilator is a really important benefit. So, you know, as I think people have been moving forward quickly to try to study drugs, but less work has been done on um, can we come together to say, like, what we think is clinically meaningful and do it without a prejudice on, oh, what is this going to mean for industry or what is this going to mean for a generic drug? Um, that's always really tricky and um, frustrating when there's, like, a political overlay to the clinical and scientific discussion. And there often is, especially with COVID. So final question um, here is... Um I've really been struck by uh, your leadership and your exceptional commitment to and relationship with the people on your team. And not surprisingly, one hears through the grapevine that people seem pretty eager to join your teams. What do you think makes you such a natural leader? Basically, what are you doing right? Well, I mean, I, I think that um, what's helpful is just that, one, I really do care. I mean, I think that I was fortunate enough when I, as I came through the system, you know, both at Mass General and at Merck and then at Gilead to work for people who gave me opportunities and, you know, helped guide me in a right, the good direction. And, um, and I want to provide that to the people who work for me because it's such a great feeling, one, to receive that kind of guidance direction, but two, to like see somebody come into their own and kind of develop themselves and, and, and then, um, you know, grow as a person and as an employee. And so I think that I, I really do focus on that. And, and I think the other thing is just being able to kind of take myself out of the equation and, and think about, um, you know, what in a heterogeneous group, you know, such as like my team, for example, different people have different strengths and trying to, to match what their strengths and where they're, where they, you know, need opportunities to and, and make it really about them and less about me and um, kind of building something um, that is right size for each person. It's kind of like personalized um, mentorship in the same way, like personalized medicine, right? Like you're just looking not to give everybody the same path towards success, but what they need at the right time. Yeah. And it's also interesting, I imagine from a you know, the, the, the absolute crashing together of discovery and translation all in real time, which is not usually how it works either. So it's sort of fascinating to watch from the sidelines. Well, that's fascinating. Um, appreciate your time. This may be the longest we've a uh, continuous uh, conversation that we've had time for since COVID started. So uh, grateful for that alone. <laughs> yeah, really. I'm curious about these leadership techniques at home and how they work. <laughs> I'll take it from your laugh that they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress. Um, but uh, that's just fantastic. Um, and it, it's really, from my perspective, just been an incredible thing to, uh, I mean, as busy as you've been, just to, to watch everything that you're doing and the impact that you're having. Thanks, Diana. My pleasure. Fun to be on the show. I'm looking forward to the episode dropping and catching it online. 
We're very uh, pleased that you chose us to come out and talk to. Mm. Do a lot of this. Yeah, my first podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, that was interesting. It's always interesting to talk to Diana. I know she's related to you, but uh, she is an amazing person in her own right. And um, it's always fascinating to hear, especially considering she's at the center of the center right now. You know, it's funny because even before this COVID started, I mean, she was super busy at Gilead because she, you know, she led Savaldi. She she wound up actually getting four, like being related, involved with, um, more or less, you know, overseeing in many ways, um, uh, four different um, Hep C products that were approved and then um, involved in HIV product. And then like, you know, like that would have been a wrong holiday, but that would have been enough. But now uh, also all this COVID <laughs> stuff um, is just, um, I mean, so incredibly busy um and i i don't know how she does it with um just sort of the uh the calmness and the grace and really this um very you know involved you know close involvement with her team members who she's so attached to and then who she she builds her team with is real care it's just an incredible thing to see well, plus you guys also have three relatively young children, so I'm sure it's wild and woolly right now. The people I really wonder about are the ones who have the younger kids, because they don't, that that Zoom, when you're like a kindergarten, yeah. the idea of Zoom is insane. Our kids are actually um, doing like knock on wood amazingly well on that. Brutal. It's a brutal time right. for people. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report and his occasional pieces for the Wall Street Journal and the Bulwark. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in quarantine in Northern California. Stay well. Stay masked.